Ali Abdal. He is a creator, he is a entrepreneur who came first at Cambridge, and he is a productivity expert. The way that I define productivity is just kind of using my time well and working on things that are meaningful to me and optimizing for happiness. I feel unproductive when I know there is something I want to do and I am not doing the thing because I'm scrolling Instagram. Procrastination is a problem with getting started. And so the key to overcoming procrastination is that little nudge at the start towards actually getting started. There are a few a few hacks. The, the one that I use all the time is the, the two minute rule. Two minutes is all you need to change your life. The way I try and remind myself of this point of I, I am enough is thinking and, and really trying to internalize that the journey is more important than the destination. We do need a destination, but really like, am I enjoying myself day to day? And am I kind of living the dream as it were day to day and not and not so much worrying about the goal at the end of it productivity procrastination two things that all people aspiring to success or really aspiring to get anything done often struggle with today we're going to try and solve that problem today i'm joined by ali abdal he is a creator on YouTube. He's got millions and millions of subscribers. He is a entrepreneur. He's a Cambridge graduate who came first at Cambridge. And he is a productivity expert. And honestly, he's read more books than anyone I think I've ever met on the subject, but generally about how to become the best version of yourself. This conversation isn't just about productivity and procrastination. It ends up twisting and turning through a bunch of different topics like relationships and friendships and the meaning of life and happiness. But what else would you expect from this podcast? You're going to enjoy this conversation. Ali is an incredibly intelligent, intellectual, compassionate, self-aware individual. And he's able to talk in a way that simplifies complex ideas for people like me and you. So without further ado, my name is Stephen Bartlett. And this is the diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening. But if you are, then please keep this to yourself. I really start here with all my guests because I think it's so foundation foundational to everything that they then say thereafter is getting a bit of context as to who you are, where you came from, mm. and the environment in which Ali was created. Oh, interesting question. Okay, so um, I was born in Karachi in Pakistan in 1994, so I'm 27 now. And when I was two years old, my mum and dad divorced and my mum moved us to Lesotho in Southern Africa. Uh, It's a country most people haven't heard of. It's surrounded by South Africa, like landlocked by South Africa. And we were there for about five, six years growing up. Uh, At that point, you know, my mum really valued education. She was working as a doctor and she knew the educational opportunities in Southern Africa in Lesotho were not great. And so we made a plan to move to the UK. So we came to the UK in 2003. She started working here as a doctor and we moved around a little bit in different areas in the UK. And it was really in in secondary school uh, that I did in Southend-on-Sea, Essex, where I discovered kind of entrepreneurship and the internet and computers and stuff. And basically all throughout school, I'd be the kid getting like decent grades and everything like that. But the thing I like, I would... I would look forward to going home so that I could do some more coding or tinker on some websites or try and shill my services as a freelance graphic designer or something for $5 here and there. And I was making kind of, you know, a little bit of money. I I lied about my age on PayPal. I pretended I was 18 when I was actually like 13. And (laughs) I was getting like five, $10 from these small businesses uh, here and there and thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm making money on the internet. This is incredible. 
And then as I went through school, uh, me and my friends, we were all quite interested in the entrepreneurship stuff. We were all, we were doing like well in school and I was like, oh, it would be cool to go to Oxford or Cambridge, it would be cool to do medicine. But really my passion at the time <laughs> was going home and, and, and tinkering with websites. And so that was kind of the environment that I grew up in. Then when I went to university, you know, thankfully I got a place for medicine at Cambridge, which was great, awesome experience. Just on that point there, so yeah. you, you were tinkering on websites and loving it. That's the thing you were like running home from school to do. Yep. Um, but then you go for medicine. What yep. was the driving force behind you deciding not to do the tinkering on websites for a living and going and doing medicine? I mean, I, you said there that your mother was a doctor. Yeah, so I think when you grow up in the sort of environment that I did, whereby parents are doctors, all of my mom's friends were doctors, everyone we knew had like doctor parents. There are so few viable careers where you think, you know, what, what are my what are my job options in life? Well, it's either doctor or lawyer or engineer. Like it's literally just those three. You don't even realize that other jobs even exist. Not in like a a way where the parents are telling you this consciously, but more like just the narrative that you absorb from the people you're around is that I could be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. Uh, and so that was always in the back of my mind that, oh, it would be cool to be a doctor one day. And when I was around 16, I... Can I ask why? Yeah. I think because doctor seemed like a prestigious thing. And I think I, I remember even when I was like six and seven, when people used to ask me what I would want to be when I was older, I used to say either a neurosurgeon or a gastroenterologist, not even knowing what that meant, but it was just like a big word that would make me feel cool that, oh, yeah. And then the adults that I would speak to would be like, oh, hello, fancy. So that in and of itself, yeah. where does prestige exist? One would assume that it exists in the mind of others. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yes. so uh, that's why I was, I, if you had said to me, I really want to save people's lives, I would really had a re high desire to like save lives and to, then I'd be like, okay, that's the voice inside. But when, when it's like status, then it was very much status and prestige. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think about to this day a lot about like now that I've taken a break from medicine, you know, often if I'm <laughs> if I'm having conversations with my mom, the re she'll try and talk me back into doing medicine again. Really? And one of her kind of bargaining chips on that front is, oh, but think about the prestige. You know, medicine has a certain prestige around it that being a YouTuber doesn't. And that's always like, oh. You know, it's that that side of me that's like, well, I want to carve my own path. I don't, I don't care about status and status and prestige. And then there's the other half where it's still like a kind of a narrative going through my life that I need to optimize for like this sort of old world prestige instead of happiness. Instead of happiness, yeah. Which is bizarre, isn't it? It's completely bizarre. Yeah, this is. Uh, <laughs> I it's was a strange, like cult. It's a cultural thing as well, largely. I think with I think with you know my mum dropped out of school when she was seven years old, mm. so doctor, lawyer, anything with prestige was the correct answer. Yeah. Um, maybe that's because, and this is me just guessing out loud, when you come from, when you're an immigrant family, one of the actual biggest predictors of hap happiness yeah. was financial security. Absolutely. And being yeah. a doctor, so it's like maybe. Yeah, I think, I think that's a big part of it where with my, with, a, with our parents' generation, especially, especially as immigrants, seeing other people who are happy correlated with other people who had like a big house and like nice cars and were going on holidays equ equals financial success equals, oh, those people did well in their traditional career of banking or medicine or engineer or law. And the narrative of like someone like you, entrepreneur, social media, big company, that it just didn't, it just wasn't really a thing in our parents' generation. And you said they're like going on holidays, da, 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 da. but I think if in, go back to my, like the village in Nigeria where my, where my mom's from, having a good job was actually like survival. 
It was like being able to eat. It was like much more just much lower things on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. It was just like being able to survive. And then not having a job and an education was like pain from food, no healthcare, no education. Um, whereas in, as you say, like in the Western world, when you grow up here, yeah, it means Lamborghini and holiday and stuff. But so you take that, you take that decision anyway, driven by your, by an external narrative to go and become a doctor. Uh, ex- external I think there was also partly an internal narrative and I'm not sure how much of this is me just bullshitting myself but when I was 16 I decided I made a conscious decision do I want to do computer science and do the tinkering with websites thing or do I want to do medicine and I think I, what I reasoned at the time was was two things number one medicine is six years at university computer science is only three everyone says university is great ergo six years is better than three years therefore medicine makes sense but the other thing that I thought was that it would be more interesting for my life to be a doctor who knows how to code than to be a coder who knows how to code. And it was like really that decision where I realized, okay, why don't I do medicine, keep the coding website kind of stuff on the side so that I can eventually do some kind of tech startup thing related to medicine. And then medicine becomes a, a, a side hustle in a way before I had the terminology of, of the phrase side hustle. And so it ended up not quite working out that way, but but certainly from my first year of med school onwards, I knew that I was not going to be a doctor full-time. I was going to do medicine for fun and I was going to make money on the side through a tech startup or, or something like that. And did you try tech startup? Uh, a little bit. So in my first year of uni, uh, second year of uni, I started a company that helped other kids get into med school. And then, so that was like in-person courses. But then eventually, because me and my brother knew how to code, we turned this into a software online question bank for the different med school admissions programs. And so that would that was it sort of like, you know, subscription billing software as a service kind of product, uh, which was the closest I got to a tech startup. I, I dabbled with a few like medical tech things. I used to do freelance app design and web design for med tech startups while I was at, while I was at uni. But when the YouTube channel started and that really started taking off, I sort of realized that the thing I actually want to do is is teaching rather than coding. Um, and then Something, something that you talk about in the book is kind of reflecting on your life and figuring out what are your values? What is the thing that you have that intrinsic motivation for? And for me, I always had that intrinsic motivation for business type stuff and also for teaching. Uh, I used to do tutoring when I was like from the age of 13 up until now. And those were the times where I felt most alive in a way where I was teaching someone else. Um, and the nice thing about being a YouTuber is that it's just teaching at scale. And so I think I found that thing that drives me intrinsically. Um, so now tech startup is sort of a, oh, backup option. If YouTube channel fails, if I get struck off the medical register, I can probably start a tech startup or, or words to that effect. I always find it a little bit weird that someone would just like go on YouTube and make a video. You know what I mean? Like that when you hear about the first time where these big YouTubers started, whether it's like True Geordie, who I've spoken to here, or Alfie Days, who I think became like the biggest, one of the biggest YouTubers in the country. Like that first decision to record yourself, usually in your bedroom on a shit camera, talking to nobody yep. is a little bit weird. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it is very odd. How did, how did it start for you? It started for me. So I, I harbored dreams of being a YouTuber since about 2009. Why? Um, because I used to follow uh, people like Kurt Schneider and Sam Sui, who were kind of YouTube cover artists. They would produce covers of popular songs. And those covers were amazing. Like they filmed them beautifully, arranged them beautifully. And I had a few friends who were really good at singing. And I fancied myself, you know, I was quite into maths. I, I liked the idea of playing multiple musical instruments. 
So I thought I want to be the sort of YouTuber where I can play along to songs and my friends who are actually good at singing can sing along to those songs. And that's the sort of YouTuber I want to be. And so I sort of had a few like sort of stop starting moments over the over those like next 10 years, um, kind of trying and failing at this. But ultimately, the reason I became a YouTuber was because it was content marketing for my medical school admissions business, where I was helping people get into med school, teaching them how to do well in these exams. And no one was really creating decent content for free on the internet about those exams. There was these kind of corporations creating boring corporate looking stuff. Um, and I saw that gap in the market. I was like, great, if I can create these sort of tutorials on YouTube, content marketing, people will watch my tutorials for free. And if they like me enough, they'll sign up to the course. And that's why I started speaking to a camera <laughs> in my bedroom. It was like, all right, guys, here are some tips for section one of the B-Man. You know, section one is all about critical thinking, the 60 minutes and 35 questions and bloody blah, blah, and here's how you do it. And I was so familiar with that stuff, having taught it for five years, um, that that started to do reasonably okay early on in the days where I had like 51 subscribers, 52, you know, refreshing the YouTube app every day to be like, oh my God, I've got another view. Um, and then it, it sort of morphed from there. Was there a tipping point where you thought, fuck, this is going to be bigger than the, the thing that I intended this to support? Yeah, that tipping point was my first video that went viral. Uh, and it was a video about how to study for exams. Um, this was one of those weird weird things that I, I look back on where when I started YouTube, it was in June of 2017, I knew that I wanted to make this video, this sort of how to study for exams, evidence-based tips at some point further down the line. It was a topic that I'd researched extensively. I like People would come to me asking for help on how to study for their exams. There's actually a whole body of like psychological research on this that we just don't get taught in school around what are the actually most effective ways to learn. And so I knew I wanted to make a video about this. But I knew that I wanted that to be like my 100th video rather than my first video because I knew that I, I knew nothing about cameras or editing or anything. And I reasoned it would take me 100 videos of being bad at it before I could make a video that was actually good. And I thought to myself, to myself okay, I really want to put all my everything into this 100th video so that this video can potentially go big. And that's kind of what ended up happening. It, I think it was my 81st video or something rather than my 100th. But that video went viral. I, I had like... 4,000 subscribers before, just sort of slowly building up. And then over the next few weeks, it just exploded up to like 20,000, 25,000. Um, and I was getting all these comments from people who knew me in real life being like, oh, I've, I've seen your video. I didn't realize you were a YouTuber. And that was the tipping point, um, which sort of started that exponential growth trajectory that kind of you talk about in the mm. compounding chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that again, I, I, so there's two things there. The first, this, I'll just do them in the order in yeah. which I, I thought of them. Um, Okay, because you mentioned compounding there. What have you learned from your experience on YouTube about the importance of, of consistency? Um, and also from what you kind of, what typically happens with viral videos is just there's, it's so impossibly hard to predict the outcome, right? So a lot of people say, a lot of people on YouTube will make videos called how to make a viral video. And in marketing, it's all like, here are the secret source, here are the secret principles. But in reality, you can only, you can, ha you can guess a couple of principles, but the outcome is hard to predict. So what have you learned about consistency, but then also being able to predict the outcome? Yeah. Uh, I, when I was listening to your your compounding chapter, I just found myself like nodding along like an absolute maniac to, to everything you were saying. I think the, it, it applies so much to YouTube. Uh, the, these days I, I teach people how to, how to be part-time YouTubers. And the, and the thing I say is that if you make one video every week for two years, then I 100% guarantee it will change your life. I can't put any numbers on it. I can't tell you you'll have 100,000 subscribers or how much money you'll be making. 
but I can 100% guarantee it will change your life at the very least in terms of the skills and the experience and the contacts and the friends you're going to make through that process where you have to put out one video a week and you have to do it for at least two years. <laughs> um, can and, I just yeah, ask please. on that then, on that point there, what is it that will, would make someone do that? Because, I mean, that's like fucking clean the floor every day for two years and I promise you it'll work out for you. Mm. It Like people don't seem to be able to do those kinds of things without some kind of intrinsic driver. So I'm like, I'm curious because you could say that to a million people. You could broadcast that through a tannoy and 95% plus will still fail. So what is it that makes people from your your experience, but also yeah, from your own life, makes them do the work without guarantee of outcome? Yeah, I think, again, <laughs> I feel like there's a bit of a cop-out because this is stuff that you talk about, uh, like in, enjoying the process. And this is kind of the theme of the book that I'm writing around how, you know, it's actually quite hard to show up week after week not see any results not see the views and the subscribers going up and, and stuff particularly quickly but the thing that makes it bearable the thing that makes it fun is actually just enjoying the process and shifting away from outcome oriented goals like a certain number of views a certain number of subscribers mm-hmm. and more towards goals that are 100 within our control like i just want to make two videos a week and if i'm happy with the video then it goes out and in fact even if i'm not happy with the video it goes out anyway and everyone i know who has succeeded on youtube has had that kind of attitude at some point I just have to get that video out every Tuesday without fail. It's not an option. It's going to get done. And, you know, like you say, when we talk when we talk about compounding, that that video on day one isn't going to do anything. The video on day two or day three or day 24 is not going to do anything. But you find when you're on day 300 and day 600, that oh, actually, all of this stuff has been compounding very, very slowly. And then the results happen really, really, really slowly. And then all at once, as soon as you just get that one video that that goes viral. That is, I think it, that's the chapter where I talk about the eighth wonder of the world. Yeah, that's it with Warren Buffett and my dog Pablo being the, the opposing investor. And I genuinely, I think I learned that lesson when I wrote the book. When I look back on my life and I thought about all the things that compounded in my favor, whether it was like my, honestly, it's going to be keep it facts with you. My teeth had some problems with my teeth. And I thought, do you know why? And I, t- I probably referenced this in the book. Like I, I hadn't been brushing one of my teeth properly. And it never mattered today or tomorrow or the day after, but there I was in that dentist chair having my teeth fucking pulled out. And then my Instagram was the same. Um, health and fitness at the moment, the same. My business was the same. And it just goes to show that it's not those key critical big decisions we make to drop out. It's that like, yeah, it's the, the compounding small, almost uh, irrelevant decisions. Um, yeah. But people don't, because I heard you started working out. I did, yeah. And then you stopped. Uh, I, so I've I've had a personal trainer now for the last kind of eight months or there so. There you go, amazing. Um, and uh, you know, I've been I've been going on and off with the workout thing since the age of eighteen, and never done it properly until I got a personal trainer. Where now I'm having to show up. I'm paying someone thirty quid an hour to basically just be with me while I'm doing stuff, and that has been the thing that's given me the most results. Uh, so I think whatever, like I, I find in my life. For, for things for things that I actually care about where I'm like, okay, I actually care about becoming a happy, sexy millionaire or whatever. Let me try and figure out ways that will remove my own need for discipline and willpower from that equation and instead get an accountability buddy or get a coach or pay a friend a hundred quid if I don't do the thing. This was what my brother and I did when we were trying to motivate ourselves. I was doing songwriting. He was doing stand-up comedy. We're like, right, if we don't do this every Thursday for half an hour, we're going to pay each other 50 quid. Um, things like that to remove the choice, the motivation, the willpower, the discipline, all 
the, the more of that can be outsourced to someone else or removed completely, the more I find I actually get stuff done. And then I don't have to worry about it because I'm like, okay, this is taken care of. I just show up. I guess you're removing, you're moving the mode as opposed to like removing it, you're moving it to another pact. Like near IL refers to it as what you've described there as a financial pact, mm. where now your motivation is to not lose 50 quid. <laughs> it's like, because that is, that's a greater motivating force than you have within yourself to work out. That's yeah. interesting. Is that sustainable? No, it's not. It's not. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is all the stuff that I'm researching for the for, for, for the book at the moment. Um, and you and you talk about this as well, like in intrinsic and, and extrinsic motivation. And the way that I th I think of it when I when I think back on my life is that everything that I've done sustainably has been because of intrinsic motivation. I've genuinely enjoyed the thing. But you can genuinely enjoy a thing and still find it really hard to get started. And I think that's where the biggest procrastination comes in for all of us, where it's actually just showing up to the gym. That's the hard part. Like once you're there, it's kind of easy. It's writing those first 10 words because once you've started writing the first 10, it's kind of easier to enjoy the process of writing the rest of them. And so the, and so the way I think about it is to, to get over that like hump of procrastination, that activation energy to get started. At that point, I will use every tool that in my arsenal to just just get me to do the thing for two minutes. Because I think once once you do the thing for two minutes, it becomes so much easier to actually enjoy the process and and, and sustain it. And and you're so right when it comes to procrastination, like that getting started point. Um, I've again just learned this from podcast guests that I've had. Nir Ayala, again, I refer to him. He he said to me one day on this podcast, he was like, "People procrastinate usually because there's um, a great deal of psychological discomfort surrounding starting the task, and a lot of the time, especially with a gym or even an essay, that psychological discomfort is like you don't have the answers." So I don't know how to use the machines at the gym or I don't actually have, I don't feel competent enough to even write this essay. So I'm just going to do the fucking dishes. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to hoover the, the whole house and anyone else's house that needs hoovering today. Exactly. Um, you, you, wrote, you made a video about procrastination, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Break that down for me. What's in, what's in the video? Um, so the video is called How to Stop Procrastinating, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the way I think about pro procrastination, basically... Procrastination is a problem with getting started. Um, kind of this this law of inertia, uh, Newton's first law that if something is at rest, it will continue to stay at rest. But if something's moving, it will continue to move without needing an external force. And so the key to overcoming procrastination is that little th that li that little nudge at the start towards actually getting started. And all of the techniques around that, like in the whole like psych psychology research or research around this, is just around making make make it as easy as possible. Um, so reduce all of the friction to doing it. If you want to learn the guitar, then have the guitar by your sofa rather than in the wardrobe where you're never going to see it. And if it's out of sight, it's out of mind, you're never going to do it. There's like the external environmental friction towards doing the thing. But then there's also the internal friction. It's like those narratives that we tell ourselves, the, oh, the, the psychological discomfort of going to the gym, the I don't want to see how other people are going to see me, the even, even having, having the wrong sort of goal. Like if my goal in writing the book is, Oh, I really want to hit the New York Times bestseller list. Then it's really, really hard to bring myself to write anything because now every single word I have to write has to be a New York Times bestselling word. Whereas if the goal is, to be honest, I just want to write a book I'm proud of that's fun to fun to write. That's actually within my control, and it becomes so much easier to get started at doing the thing. Um, so to overcome procrastination, we need to eliminate external friction, i.e., the environmental stuff. We need to try our best to get rid of the internal friction, like the emotional side of it, the mindset, the perfectionism, the the fear, the discomfort. And then if we still need help, there are a few a few hacks. The, the one that I use all the time is the, the two-minute rule, which is where I will genuinely convince myself I'm only going to do it for two minutes. Uh, and if I want, I'm allowed to stop after the two minutes because two minutes is better than nothing. 
But like 95% of the time I decide to continue because two minutes is all you need to change your life. Yeah. I should, I should tweet that. That's good. It's so yeah, that's really good. I, and I that two minute thing is fascinating to me because I one of the things that um I see as another psychological barrier to starting is people view it as like they view the challenge as Mount Everest. Whereas if, like they've got a I'll say it in another way, they view the challenge as moving Mount Everest. And really, if they viewed it as just like moving one pebble at a time, it becomes such a simple task. Yeah. And I get this a lot when entrepreneurs ask me, they say, Steve, I want to start a business. Where do I start? And you can hear in the question that they see it as moving Mount Everest. And I'm like, well, today, all you have to do is think of a name. Just think of like 50 names, make a short list of names. And then we'll we'll revisit it tomorrow. And then tomorrow, maybe think of, you know, go and check if the website's available. And then we'll revisit it the day after. And when it becomes that, and when it becomes sort of really small itemized, one small step at a time, and you're not having to get from stair zero to a thousand immediately, it becomes so, you know, the psychological discomfort fades away. It feels achievable. And that your two-minute rule is doing a similar thing where it's saying, well, today only I've, I've only got to do just, just if I can open the Word document and write yeah, the title exactly. and then we're done. <laughs> you know, and so yeah. that's fascinating. What about, re- re- you, you were going to say something else there. Yeah, I mean, uh, just just to your point there, um, have, you, have you come across the, the blog Wait But Why? No. Oh, it's incredible. You should definitely interview Tim Urban when you're in America. Oh, in- I, do you know what? I literally yesterday went on his Instagram and sent him a DM. Oh, great. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Any, any podcast he's ever been on, I've been like, oh, this is so sick. Uh, he has a great blog post series about overcoming procrastination. And the way he refers to that, that, that point you just made is that um, there are lots of tasks that are very like vague and icky. Mm. And you have to be able to unickify a task. Uh, and something like start a business is icky. Something like learn to code is icky because like, what the hell does that even mean? Like, where do you even start? Whereas brainstorm 10 ideas for a name and pick one of them is a very clearly defined next action step. And so I get this with students all the time where people are like, oh, I don't have the motivation to study for my chemistry exam. It's like, what's on your to-do list? Study for my chemistry exam. That's never going to happen. Read chapter one and answer questions four to five are a reasonable thing, a reasonably defined next action step. Mm. And so what I do is anytime I find myself procrastinating from something, I think, okay, am I procrastinating because I actually, the the task is too icky. I I don't know what I have to do. Because once I know what I have to do, I can then do it for two minutes and it gets done. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky. And it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. You, you know, people talk about how they'll put on their to-do list, clean house, and it'll sit on a to-do list. And clean house, that's a, that's so, a and, big thing. So thing <laughs> and, it'll t- and that'll sit on your to-do list for like, I don't know, two weeks or whatever. But if you do, if you time block and write in your, this is what I do on the weekends because, so Monday to Friday, my schedule is ran by the, the meetings and things I have to do. So I'm a slave to the calendar. Saturday and Sunday come around. I wake up, I'm like, 
okay <laughs> i'm like what the fuck how does yeah. this thing work it's like yeah i'm like it's empty i've got loads of things i know i could be doing right yeah. now but nothing no one telling me what to do in a, in a in a life of mine where i'm told what to do every five minutes um so i time block on the weekends which means clean house would become at 11 till 12 i clean the kitchen because <laughs> yeah. then it's like time sensitive <laughs> and like task specific yeah and that's that's been an absolute game changer for me and I also think in the era of working from home yeah where you know people are sat at home they have a tasks they have to complete. Oh. <laughs> it's like we, we, it's, it's almost like we prep for this because like this is literally like the the three-part structure of, of my book which I've been like I just having in my head for the last last few weeks perfect where like step one is how do we beat the procrastination? How do we get started with doing the thing? And part two of the book is how do we sustain? How do we actually keep on going doing the thing? And uh, there's just uh, so in 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 terms of mindset, the thing that I found that actually moves the needle is focusing on trying to make it fun. And I really I really like that word fun. Like I think there's something about the word fun that is so like childish, but also fully speaks to like fun. Basically means in intrinsic motivation. Like something is sufficiently enjoyable that you do it for its own sake rather than for the fact that you've got a sponsor helping you or you've got a deadline or, or things like that. Um, there's one there's one story in particular that I, I I often come back to and that's like sometime last year I was I was working at the hospital. It was pandemic season, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd, I'd gotten to the end of like a 13 hour long shift and I was just about to go home. Uh, and the nurse said to me, oh, Ali, can you put a cannula in this patient? Her like IV line is tissued and, and she needs fluids overnight and my heart kind of sank i was like oh no like if, if the nurse wasn't able to put the cannula in that means there's a patient with difficult veins it means it's going to be hard to put this in and i sort of had this mindset of like all right then fine and sort of uh, grudgingly took out the cannula and got, got all the, the equipment in a tray and i like as as i was doing this i there was a, a patient in the bay next door where they were just like talking to a family member or something and saying oh you know the, this hospital has been amazing everyone is so nice and what a pleasure it is you know freaking love the nhs kind of vibes and i realized that in that moment i was not being like a good model internally for what i want the nhs to be and what i want a good doctor to be and there's something that seth godin uh, who uh, who i've been following for a while says which is that it's the difference between have to and get to. And so I was considering it as like, oh, I have to put in this cannula. And I remembered that blog post I read from Seth Godin where he said, instead of thinking of have to, think of it as get to. And I realized, oh, I get to put in this cannula. I get to make a difference in this patient's lives and, and life and give her fluids overnight so that she's not going to dehydrate because of her morning sickness. And just that mindset shift immediately made me feel so much better about it. And I was like, oh, I get to do this. Who cares if I've been working for 13 hours? This is fun. This is privileged. This is cool. And I put it in and we had a nice chat and I felt really great about it afterwards. And now like that. And so that's one of the mindset things that I just always come back to. If I'm finding myself not enjoying something and therefore my focus goes, I get distracted. I'm, I procrastinate. Instead of thinking I have to do this, I think I get to do this. It's like a gratitude shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's like your chapter three or whatever mm. was talking about gratitude. Mm. <laughs> and we so quickly yeah. fall out of gratitude mm. when it's, we become so used to, to Yeah. When we become like used to the privilege of our life, used to the privilege of our jobs, of our relationships, of our kids, of our dog, we we think, well, you know, we and because it, and the Stoic people talk about this, I think I probably talk about this in the book as well because these are just like the, yeah. clearly the only ideas I have. <laughs> I put them all in there. Um, about how they used to do that, like hedonistic adaptation, yeah. 
um, exercises to literally take the things out of their life that they really value mm. just to remind themselves of what they had. And it kind of seems like, yeah, gratitude is a very important thing. Have you, have you got like a defined gratitude practice that you do, like gratitude journaling or that kind of stuff? Or would, so I, the gratitude journaling thing um, takes place in the notes of my phone where sometimes I feel the need to remind myself of what I'm really, really grateful for. I think I do have a a bias towards feeling grateful all the time. I really just get overwhelmed sometimes with like, I'll have like a little flash. You probably get this when you think, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Like what the, f especially now that I'm on Dragon's Den and that was a real vision of mine from yep. when I was like 12 years old. I'm like, oh my, this is, and I said this in my show the other day, I said, um, said on stage in the Diary of a CEO Live, I said that, um, I said to the audience, I said like, I think everybody in this room is living a life that you once dreamed of living, but you don't, you're not even happy about it because present you, well, yeah, present you has told you that future you will be even happier when you get to somewhere else but like this is it this was the fucking dream and look at you living it look at you as your you know doctors and lawyers and you've got the job at that brand you always wanted to work for this is it um and i i have to do that to myself sometimes because yeah it, um because if not you'll never get there if your happiness is always as i say in the book if, if it always lives somewhere in the future behind yeah. some goal or it's the attainment of some task or whatever it always will be there and that was certainly the case for me and i from what i read about you where um you were talking about like outcomes and not being too attached to the outcomes sounds like it might have been similar yeah yeah very much so um i i have to remind myself on a daily basis as well um to kind of be 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 grateful for for all of the things um sometimes like if i if if i'm in the habit of doing like a morning journal i'll like write down a list of three things and it's it's often simple things like you know this cup of coffee in my hand or angus or like my housemate and just like you know this nice chat that we had and i think like like for me if if i don't remind myself i th i always just think in kind of hustle mode of like all right cool onto the next thing onto the next thing onto the next thing um but like it was it was pretty cool yesterday like we 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 went on a tour of Gymshark HQ up north and i was just thinking that i can't believe this is this is my job <laughs> like i i get to do this for work this is absolutely sick and even now being here like this is sitting here talking to you is what i get to do for work and if like i don't know 18 year old me were to imagine being in this position now i'd just been like oh my god this is this is the dream have you come across a guy called Brandon Sanderson nope uh, he's an author. He he writes. He's he's my favorite author. Uh, he d does these incredible like fantasy novels, Stormlight Archive, huge 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 uh, series. In it, there's like a a phrase that I always come back to ar around this point. There's this like um, order of knights. They call the Knights Radiant, and they have like their like charter, their ideals. And their first ideal is life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. And it's that final bit of journey before destination that I remind myself of on a basically daily basis where it's it's kind of like Marty Cyrus's thing of it's the climb. It's not mm. about how fast I get there. It ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb. And the way I try and I try and remind myself of this point of I, I am enough is thinking and, and really trying to internalize that the journey is more important than the destination. Mm. And I think we do need a destination. Like, you know, the fact that I want to, I don't know, write this book or whatever, like that's that's a destination. But now that I've got that destination of like, cool, this is the direction I want to go. At that point in a dream world, I, I would just forget about that. And now that I'm on the journey, I would enjoy the journey on its own merit. Mm. Because, you know, as you know, once you, if you set a goal, you hit the goal, it's like, well, 
happiness started uh, the the joy from that lasts about five seconds and then it feels like nothing even like <laughs> sometimes it doesn't feel like anything at all even even for those five seconds mm-hmm. um and so what i've been realizing a lot recently is that yes we're i don't know expanding the team and moving to an office in london and like hiring people and bloody blah 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 but really like am i enjoying myself day to day and am i kind of living the dream as it were day to day and not and not so much worrying about the goal at the end of it one thing that you that you, that you talk about as well um is i think it was either 19 chapter, chapter 19 or 20 it was around this thing of can, yeah ambition versus insecurity is this thing that you think you want to do is it coming from within or is it coming from outside of you and you talk about values like living in alignment with your values do you have any like how how do you figure out what your values are <laughs> it's a really interest it's a really interesting um thing um i think i think one of the the best indicators of what your values are are from how you feel that's maybe the most um fundamental human stimuli we have which is how something makes us feel um slight tangent and i was talking to someone about this yesterday in the world we live in and as the social media connected from birth generation we don't understand what our actual true intrinsic values are very easily because even if and this is kind of a controversial topic but who cares even charity Mm, we all think we're charitable (laughs) human beings we're not. And if you've only got to look back at, at human history to understand that our morals are highly influenced by what society is doing at the time, because if you go back 150 years, I would have been a slave, p- potentially, right? My m- family certainly would have in Africa. Like they would have had a high p- chance of being slaves. Mm. And at the time, my slave master was not a bad person. Mm. He was a good person, you know, morally sound person, you know, and, 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 now, obviously, that's viewed as being an awful thing. Mm. And it's the same within, like, the, the LGBTQ com- TQQ community that, you know, at one time, um, it, that was just everyone knew that believed that being in a same-sex relationship was a terrible thing, an evil thing in some religious um, writings. Now we all accept it to be... How can our morals of society has changed? The force that's telling us what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's valued and what, you know, has changed. That's the only change that's happened. So I do believe deeply that a lot of our values um, unavoidably come from our willingness to survive by taking up the values of the communities we live in. However, when it comes to your personal values, however they've been shaped, usually from your parents or early experiences, I, I just go on based on how things make me feel. And that seems to be the only indication I, I, I have of what's what's true for me and what's not. If, I, if I'm alone and I watch a, a video of a baby um, suffering or crying and it makes me sad mm. when no one's around yep. <laughs> and I'm not having to tweet about my sure. feelings yep. to the world, then I would assume that that is, you know, you said about learning and sorry, teaching. Mm. You've got enjoyment from that. You've always got, I would assume that's one of your sort of professional values or something you value professionally. Yeah. I've been on a whole like uh, quest across the internet over the last few months to try and answer this question of how do you, how do you figure out what your values are? Um, there's this like program with a life coach that I even did, which is like just just finishing up where um, one of the exercises was to like go back to your childhood and think about kind of on a scale of kind of minus 10 to plus 10, uh, minus being really bad and plus being pretty good. Like what were the most salient experiences of your childhood? And I was like, okay, this sounds like BS, but all right, let me engage with this process. And then 
I, I made this list of all these things that these salient memories from childhood, like, you know, that time when my brother new game to my Pokemon Blue and I lost my 146 Pokemon and that how, how that felt and that time when whatever. Um, and the facilitator was like, okay, let's try and tease out like what this might tell you about some of your values. And I was kind of surprised that a lot of the stuff that came out of that, if I think about, is this a core value that I live by slash I want to live by? The answer was yes. Uh, and I was surprised by how much of those experiences where when I was under 10 years old shaped maybe the values that I've got right now. And so when I think about my values, it's things like, I think primarily for me right now, it's like freedom and autonomy, mm -hmm. which is why I think I've got this whole drive to be financially independent, to work medicine part-time rather than full-time, to have, be in control of my own schedule. Things like togetherness and kind of working with other people has always been a really fun thing for me, whether I was in school or university, studying with friends is just always more fun than studying on my own. And that wasn't true for everyone, but it was certainly true for me. Um, teaching on that list, kind of uh, hel helping other people in a way. But like I've got, I've got friends, for example, who 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 run charities, and they genuinely feel in their hearts if there is suffering in the world. Yeah. And I don't genuinely feel in my heart when there's suffering in the world. Um, but I know intellectually that I should care about this thing, and so I will act in a way that makes me care about the thing, and like donate ten percent of my money to charity every year, and all this all this stuff. But I won't actually feel it. Um, but when I think about how I feel, it's like te teaching other people rather than saving saving lives is the impact that I care about having. And when I realized this, I was like, oh, okay, this explains why I actually don't really care that much about medicine. Like I'm, I prefer teaching medical students than actually practicing as a doctor mm. and realizing that teaching is more of a value for me than saving lives, mm. for example. I was like, okay, cool. This, this makes sense. I can now get on board with that and not feel bad about it. The other point is that I've never cared about really i've really never cared about finding out what my values are because and this is probably goes back to how i answered that question because the stimuli that i have to decide all of these things is like um how does it make me feel mm. and i think if you have a good quitting framework then you will quickly move in the direction of your values um much faster than others will quitting framework yeah like if you have a good uh, a good uh like quitting framework oh or yeah you're very good at quitting then you, you'll actually you'll so if you're good at conducting experiments and then quitting like just a it's like rapid a b testing right and you can i think i think the answer really to finding out who you are and what your values are and getting your place to a life that you really love is try something i, I always say to young people increase the amount of experiments you're doing and quit faster mm. so you go and get a job you're like okay um i hate this this boss was a dick because we didn't have any freedom here or autonomy i hate that part i love the fashion part but i just hate this environment because of this this and this quit go and find a job where you have the bit you liked and some new sort of uh, factors. And then you go, okay, well, I love that bit. I actually loved being a manager here. I'm going to keep the fashion piece. I love the autonomy of being able to work from home or whatever. Mm -hmm. da -da -da, quit, move on. Da, next job. You know. And I think that's what I've done in my life is I never knew what my values were, but I went in the direction of, um, I started out in call centers, knew I loved building things, being an entrepreneur in sales, moved in that direction, quit the call center jobs, did about 15 of them, start my own business, parts of business I really don't like. Yeah. Don't want to do those parts. Don't do them. I still don't do them. Yep. And I'm like, this is the part within this bit, within business that I love doing within this industry. And I never was intentional about that. There was no plan. It was this rapid, increase the experiments you're doing and quit as fast as you possibly can. Um, and then you end up, I think, in a life that you're, but quitting is easier said than done. I have to say, it would be remiss if I didn't say, all of this is underpinned by huge confidence in self. And the fact when I do quit, I don't need a plan and that I'll, I'll be fine. 
a lot of people don't have that part so they hold themselves in a miserable situation because it's a certain one yeah you know i like uh, like when i when i read that bit of the book the the quitting framework i was sort of retrospectively applying decisions i've made to quit to that that thing of like suck and hard and i was like oh okay this actually makes a lot of sense um there was one decision that my mom still haunts me about <laughs> uh, which was about about a year ago i decided that you know what i want to take my medical career seriously and i want to move to america to do medicine i had a few friends who were there it seemed like an adventure and it seemed cool but to move to america from the uk to do medicine you have to take this like ridiculously hard exam called the usmle and it's basically like relearning all of medical school uh but at like you know a ridiculous level of detail more so than we have in the uk and so i started off preparing for this and i realized that this is actually really hard and the thing that i reasoned in my mind was i could do this it's uh, but the reward is really not worth it like you get to the end of it i'd spoken to some doctors live working in america they were like yeah you make 400k a year and you're working a lot and you're going through this four years of grueling residency program and in my mind it was like okay it's it's hard and the outcome is not worth it yes therefore i'm just going to quit that's the worst place to be in life yeah. <laughs> doing hard sh- struggling for nothing yeah <laughs> Um, but then when I have conversations with my mom, it's like, oh, well, y- you quit because you're a quitter. Like the fact that you found it hard, me, like y- y- you only quit because it was hard. And it's like, no, I, d- I didn't only quit because it was hard. I also, I also crucially quit because it was like the, the reward was not going to be worth it. But I, I didn't quite have the terminology to express that until I read it in your book. Basically. Yeah. Well, I didn't either. And it was, again, that's why I have to specify that that's not the framework I've made my life decisions to do for my whole life in hindsight what i'm a very logical sort of first principle thinker and that's why i'm able to arrive at peace when i make these massive life decisions because it's like oh logically there was no alternative there was no alternative i'm not going to do something that's hard and not worth it what kind of insanity is that i am someone that will do something that's hard and worth it i'm not and i'm I'm not someone that's going to quit every time something sucks. Yeah. I am someone that's going to try and change it if it's worth it and if I think it's possible to change. Me and my wife, you know, my girlfriend have an argument and I go, this sucks and fucking walk out the door. That's not who I am. I will try and fight for something if it's worth it and if I believe it's changeable. And so logically, I think that framework is robust. Mm. I think it's solid. You talk a lot about time management, mm. managing one's time. You've made a lot of videos about the topic. What would have been some of the other sort of um, tips or tricks that you've adopted that have helped you manage your time better? We talked about time blocking mm. and um, breaking your vague to-do list tasks down into specific ones. Yeah. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, there's one. Um, I've I've read a bunch of books around productivity and stuff. Uh, there's one called Make Time by these chaps called Jake and John. Uh, and there's a tip in there, which I genuinely use every day. Uh, it's just It's called The Daily Highlight, where it's just... Similar to Gary Keller's thing of the one thing, like what is the one thing you want to do today? And then it's like, I define that in the morning. Okay, what's the one thing I want to do today? Record this podcast with you. What's the one thing I want to do tomorrow? Finish sample chapter for the book proposal. And then I'll stick a slot in the calendar for it. And then the thing will get done. And on days where I actually do the daily highlight thing, I have about a 50% success rate with actually thinking about it in the morning. Mm -hmm. I always just get more done. And I feel at the end of the day, oh, I've made progress because I've done that one thing that was most important. And on the days where I don't, I find that like, oh, I've got these 18 things to do on my to-do list. Oh, can't be book. Got this MI message coming from this person who wants to intro, intro to that person. <laughs> Whereas when, when I know what that one thing is, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. All I have to do is just get that one thing done today. And I sometimes think that if I did this more often, 
if for 365 days, I actually just did the one thing that's most important each day, I'd be making so much progress. <laughs> I'd be having so much fun. <laughs> and then I think to myself, why, do, why don't I actually just do this every day? Um, but that's that's one of my main ones. That's life as well. Just... And you, you, when you talked about the tipping point in your career where you blew up, mm. you're talking about, made, you made that video about how to study. Mm. And I guess the premise of that video was teaching people how to learn better. Yep. You've read a lot of books. Mm. As it relates to learning, yeah. Outside of studying, just yeah. more generally, what tools have you adopted? Because you're some, you even, you know, you've read my book and you remember all, everything, it seems. What trips and tips and tricks have you learned about how to learn better? Yeah. Um, so, essentially, the main one is that we learn by testing ourselves rather than by consuming more stuff. Uh, like we, like in, in, which is a bit counterintuitive, like when it comes to, if we, if we think about like studying and then we can kind of broaden it out, like if it comes to studying, we think that to to learn more stuff, I need to get more information into my brain. But what, what, what all the evidence says is that, no, to learn more stuff, you actually just need to read it once and then you have to try your best to get it out of your brain. And that feels hard and it feels tough and it feels like, oh, I'm, I'm an idiot, I don't know enough. But that that like desirable difficulty is what allegedly creates the neuronal connections in our brain to make us actually learn something. Um, and so it's similar to working out like progressive overload when it's heavy and when it feels hard is when your muscles are actually growing because you've got the stimulus for growth. Equally, when it comes to learning anything, when it feels hard is when there is a stimulus for the neurons to grow or words to that effect. And so when it comes to studying, if anyone is sort of listening to this, has exams coming up and they are worried about their grades, the, the, the answer is that they're just not testing themselves enough. The more you test yourself, the better grades you'll get. And this therefore applies also to every other thing that we're trying to learn. So, you know, if I'm learning... I was learning how to play You've Got a Friend in Me on the guitar the other day. And if I'm just playing through the first two verses of it that I know already, I'm not learning anything. But as soon as I try doing the thing that feels hard, at that point, it's like it, the, the harder it feels, the more I'm learning. And then and then we sleep and then the connections get solidified. Um, so it's that that's kind of the main concept. Basically, test yourself more, whatever that thing is. Um, and the second big one in the research is spaced repetition, that anything we learn, whether it's a fact for an exam or a song on the guitar, our memory for it will exponentially decay over time. And the way to make it go into a long-term memory, whatever the skill is, is to interrupt the forgetting curve uh, at spaced intervals. So maybe you would you would practice the song on day one, you'd practice it again on day two, then on day five, then on day 25, and then on day 105. And as the intervals lengthen, that is the sort of thing that gets this how to play the song or this fact about medicine or whatever into our long-term memory. And most things around learning can basically be summed up by those two things. Active recall, i.e. test yourself, and space repetition, i.e. space it out over time. Interesting. People are really fascinated by productivity, aren't they? They are, yeah. I think I heard you say about, like, when you put the word productivity in your content, it yeah. seems to perform better. Yeah. I I often think about this. Like, so, t so to me, productivity, I think, I think to a lot of people, productivity just means efficiency and creating economic output. The way that I define productivity is just kind of using my time well and working on things that are meaningful to me and optimizing for happiness. And so to me, this conversation is, is productive. Hanging out with friends is productive. I was playing PlayStation last night for a couple of hours. That to me was productive because I was like intentionally doing it because I wanted to take a break from writing. Um, it's when I feel, it's, I, I feel unproductive when I know there is something I want to do and I am not doing the thing because I'm scrolling Instagram. That to me is unproductive. You're not being intentional with your time. Exactly, yeah. But I think on the internet these days, people use productive as economic output and the whole like, oh, I want to be more productive. It's a, 
I think partly it's a virtue signaling thing to some degree as well. Yeah, yeah. Partly it's a it's a, it's a virtue a virtue signaling thing. I think I think partly it's also like a self-flagellating thing in a way, whereby I I often see comments on my videos where it's like oh, productive day in my life, which I'm kind of doing tongue in cheek just because it's funny. Where people are like, "Oh my god, I watch these videos just to make myself feel bad," <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh wow, okay." Uh, a, this is a this is mostly a joke. Like, I hope you realize this, but <laughs> but <laughs> but also, it's like that that's kind of sad that that comment has got so many upvotes. Where oh, I feel so I feel like such a waste man when I watch one of Ali Abdul's videos, and I think there is that like perverse sense of people getting pleasure out of the story they're telling themselves that they are non-productive or that they are a chronic procrastinator, and to see someone who doesn't who is on the surface seemingly so productive makes you kind of feel bad about yourself um i wonder if it's similar to like if i look at my instagram explore page about a year ago it used to be bikini models these days it's the dudes with six pack abs <laughs> and i look at that and there is a part of me that gets pleasure out of like flagellating myself and then like why why don't i look like that yet and i wonder to what extent that's like a thing in the world of productivity that is fascinating cuz I mean, that would be driven by the antithesis of that. That's got to be driven by a culture where productivity and I'm getting so much done, so I'm going to be successful and rich and a millionaire. And this is, I'm in stealth mode building this massive business and I've been <laughs> up all night. Look at me, it's 4 a.m. and I'm still working. Yep. That's driving one end of the spectrum, which yep. is making productivity and being productive an aspiration for this generation. Yep. And on the other end, that's, I mean, that's why, again, the desire to be productive is so high and your videos do so well on that topic. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the counter movement as yeah. you always do, where it's like, I'm such a procrastinator. And then all the memes, yeah. <laughs> which bang just as hard because mm-hmm. th- there's been this desire created in culture to be, you know, super productive or even as it relates to like weight and fitness, like everyone wants to look so good. And then the memes of people sat there with a pot noodle in their belly, like resting, like <laughs> with their like running shoes on <laughs> will also bang just as hard. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a very relevant thing in our culture, which is quite, quite strange that the, this incessant desire to be productive. I think there's actually, there is a rising counterculture, which is about being okay with not being productive. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having to pepper in, pepper that into my videos a lot more these days nice. um, because I kind of thought it was, it was so obvious that it doesn't need to be stated that obviously, you know, <laughs> don't be, don't be, don't seek economic output and productivity at the expense of other things that are more important like health and relationships uh but clearly that's not a thing that is obvious <laughs> and so i'm now having to caveat a lot of my productivity advice with like a look guys let's just define productivity as you know meaning and fulfillment and stuff <laughs> rather than pure economic output and it's okay to be intentional and say i don't want to do anything today if that was your intention i want to just do fuck all like and i think that's um that's the nuance that's required in all of that you talked about relationships at the start of this podcast. Mm. You said, you said you, you, I think you alluded to the fact that you hadn't had much luck there mm. when we were talking about knowing you're enough. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, this is a real problem. Um, so there's a few like narratives that I've bought into um, subconsciously. One of those narratives is that I am like a weedy nerd kid, the, the, the kid that I was when I was 12 years old and getting slightly bullied in school and getting grades and stuff, but like not really have anything, anything, uh, not being valuable as a human being beyond the fact that I was generating A stars in sure. exams. That's like one side of it. There's, there's another side, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your take on, on What's the on other that. side? The other side is, um, 
if we're if we're keeping it real it's like i think it's around masculinity mm-hmm. and what it means to be a man and if one if one were to hypothetically read wiki how articles on how to get girls or even the vast literature on the topic um there is a big thing of women are attracted to men like you know people who are so, so, so someone who is a man someone who leads someone who's like alpha those sorts of those those sorts of things and i think my kind of default way of being is very not that and like my idea of fun is singing disney songs and playing board games uh, until two o'clock in the morning with a pizza takeaway rather than something that a more like macho alpha type person person would be and so on the one hand there's that thing of just be yourself uh, of be your authentic self, et cetera, et cetera. And a girl will like that for who you are. And on the other side, it's the the thing of you will objectively get more success with women in inverted commas if you sort of are more of that alpha type personality. And well, here's, was, here's the problem you have. Yeah, please. <laughs> on the, on the, that, that particular point before we move on, because I'd love to hear what you were going yeah. on to say, but um, you were, you were it sounded like you were saying, do mm. I be myself and dance around listening to Disney? Um, even yep. though it might return a, a lower quantity yep. of smoking hot potential partners. Correct. <laughs> um, or the alternative to that is, do I be a masculine um, guy and like yep. act outside of self yep. to g- generate more smoking hot partners? <laughs> the issue you have is you just got to zoom out and you've yeah. got to think about the outcome of bro- both approaches mm. and how sustainable both pro- approaches are. Mm. All you can be is yourself for a long period of time. Okay. And if you want long, long-term results, that's the only option you have. Of course, you can act as something you're not and pretend you don't like Disney and yep. not listen, play board games and stuff. And you might meet the wrong person for a short amount of time. Mm. because And it will be a short amount of time because that relationship will yep. <laughs> capitulate the minute they find out who you actually are. And this is, uh, there's, you know, um, yeah, this is, this is always... For me, the answer is you have to be yourself. You have no choice in that. You do have a choice in being able to kill some of those confidence issues, which might be self-sabotaging at key points in the relationship where it turns into insecurity and results in jealousy. And you know, if you're coming into a relationship thinking, why the fuck is this person with me? Yeah. The chance of you exhibiting jealous behavior and controlling behavior and manipulative behavior and insecure behavior and where are you? Why haven't you here? Why haven't you texted me back fast yeah. enough? And is is high. And for me, that will put undue pressure on something that might have worked otherwise. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and work on the the confidence issues, yeah. but never, ever dare change who you are. Like the things you intrinsic, do not change those. Do not try and act outside of those because that is that will lead to really short-term results. And you don't actually want to be with anyone for 50 years that doesn't want to dance and listen to Disney movies with you. You don't actually want to. Society's telling you you want smoking art, but you don't actually want that. You'll, you won't return joy on that. You'll, you'll return status from walking in with a smoking hot m- model that has no brain but you won't return joy in the long term. And that is the goal. That's the North Star. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Um, on the note of being yourself, the thing that I, the, the, the thing that I feel, I feel, uh, I feel a contradiction is that on the one side, there's, there's kind of be yourself. And on the other side, there's like choose yourself. And what I, what I worry about is what if this person who I am, i.e. the kind of, nice guy who like like enjoys Dis- disney and board games and stuff that's a result of accidental experiences that i haven't really chosen for myself and should i 
instead be thinking, okay, who's the sort of person I want to be? Although having having said that, I don't want to be anyone who doesn't sing along Disney songs because they're just great. Um, yeah. And you sing along to Disney songs, not because you're now being forced, because no. you enjoy it. Yeah, it's just genuinely fun. It makes you feel I good. I love it. Yeah, it's so good. And there you go. So that's, that's part of the answer to a lot of the things we've discussed before, which yeah. is going in the direction of the things that make you feel good. Don't suppress things that make you feel good because then you'll feel shit. So if that makes you feel good, that is, in, as far as I'm concerned... You've explored and exploited, as you say, yeah. and you've and you've and you found something you enjoy. And don't sacrifice that for what? Yeah. For a pretty woman to be st- stood next to you? Yeah. That's not in- that that trust me will not be enjoyment. That'll be status. That'll yeah. be extrinsic approval, right. which is very different from internal fulfillment. So I would never disregard those things. However, you can, as I've done over the last year and a half, say, do you know what? It, when I look at my values and who I I actually want to be internally. My health, this is what I've done, is so foundational to everything. And I really managed to almost like hypnotize myself somehow um, into knowing that me being in good shape and me being someone that goes to the gym every day and prioritizes that my health is my first foundation is in line with my happiness. The change in my life, the thing that's put me in the best shape of my life ever was before, as I've said in this podcast, me working out was all about women. The minute it became not about women, it stuck. Because, because um, yeah, for so many reasons. The minute I, I enjoyed the process and I removed wanting six pack and I, I basically don't have any gym goals now whatsoever. My goal is to go every day. It stuck. It became intrinsic. It was for me. Um, and now I go every single day. And the minute we finish this conversation, my PT's waiting for me. And I went yesterday, the day before, I'll go the day tomorrow, every day. Okay. I don't care. I'm not doing it for anyone else. So it sticks. Interesting. That's why your relationship will fail if you're with a, uh, someone that you, you're with yeah. for external reasons. It won't stick. Okay. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Content. Content. Yeah, you make a lot of content. Mm. And you have must have come to learn a lot about humans and psychology from all these videos you make. You tinker around with the titles and the thumbnails. And, um, uh, and you've become such a big YouTuber. You've got millions of subscribers from a very iterative process of, I guess, really understanding what humans will respond to and what they want, what their desires are. What would you give me as an advice for how to make, if I'm a listener, a really great content that people will care about? It's a broad question, but there you go. I think it's about hooking them in with the promise of something simple and quick. And then... And and if you stop at that point, that is, I think, where a kind of a sort of course scammers and uh, marketing gurus and stuff were maybe 20 years ago. It's hooking them in with a simple and quick promise, but then delivering on the nuance of it that I think people are caring about more than ever now. And so, like, one thing that we've iterated with over time is, you know, often the success of a video will depend on how clickbait the title is. And there's no getting around that. We've never found that a title that's less clickbait uh, does better. I, I, I did a video called How Writing Online Changed My Life. It absolutely bombed. Just change the title. How Writing Online Made Me a Millionaire. Poof, suddenly absolutely exploded. People love that. Like, oh, this is a quick solution. Uh, this is a quick path to this um, this this goal that I want. Hence your title of Happy Sexy Millionaire. Um but we've also found that on videos where I think, oh, let's let's dumb the message down, let's just kind of do a quick five-point listicle, 
without any examples because people just want the dopamine hit of advice that sounds reasonable but they, they can't action those videos haven't done as well like people click on them but then they don't stay watching and the videos we found that do the best is you make a promise at the start and then you deliver on the nuance throughout the whole thing and actually people at least in my audience and i suspect in yours and anyone listening actually do want depth and nuance not just a sort of surface level two minute long thing that you would have seen on youtube circa 2005 um i think you did a pretty great job of that as um yeah yeah i'm learning i'm con- you know continue to learn youtube's a bit of a new medium for me so it was good it's good to to get that um that perspective you you also um you're very in in sort of self-aware and honest i, I you wrote something about um why you're failing which is a uh, I, th- I think you wrote a piece which was detailing why you think you're failing in life. I think I have this issue where I often feel like what I'm currently doing is not, quote, good enough because, you know, we're leaving money on the table or because our team is inexperienced or because I suck at being a manager or I suck at being a leader. And although I'm learning to improve in, in all those things, I sometimes feel that, oh, but it's 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 not fast enough. And I think that's where the comparison stuff comes in because when my peer group was kind of just my friends in medical school and I was doing the YouTube stuff and then I was kind of the only one in the in the in the pack doing the thing. And so it was like, oh, anything goes. Like I'm not comparing myself to anyone. Now that I am sort of a bigger name on YouTube the sorts of people I compare myself to now are kind of other YouTubers with millions of subscribers. The population for comparison changes. And I find that the more I compare, the less good I feel about the stuff that I've done. And so to get around that, I try to just A, not compare at all, and B, also think journey before destination, all the all, all of the mindset stuff. But it's easier said than done. And I still feel internally like right now, we're not using money in the company like efficiently enough. We're not hiring fast enough. We're not doing this fast enough. We're not doing that fast enough. Um, do you think you'll ever get to a point where that stops? Hmm. Because I tell you what. Yeah, what's, what's it been like for you? <laughs> well, I mean, no, I was just going to say, for, for, yeah. let's just, I mean, one way to look at it is Ali, five years ago, when you first started, mm. if you had shown him a picture of you now, yep. what would he have said? That's pretty cool. <laughs> he, I mean, like, if you'd gone, if when you made those first couple of videos, you'd yep. gone, you're going to have 2 million subscribers on YouTube. You can have all, hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram. I would have had a stroke. You would have <laughs> like, had a yeah. fucking stroke. <laughs> like, there's no way. <laughs> there's no fucking yeah. way. That's me. Yeah. And here you are. This is what I was alluding to earlier. It's like yeah. <laughs> a pr- past version of yourself told you you'd be happy when you got here, mm. but you're not because like you're not f- fully satisfied because there's a future version of yourself that's saying you'll be happy when you get here. Mm. And it just never fucking yeah. stops. It never stops, does it? Like it seems, it it seems like at least on the outside that you've done a good job of kind of, I mean, obviously you're like particularly successful, but like being okay with that level of success and not trying to get to the the next level for whatever that looks like. I think so. I think so more than a lot of people I speak to. <laughs> I think it's. I mean, there's still elements in me that are like I can do more and I can I can I can take on bigger challenges in my life. Yeah. But I'm definitely definitely now detached from thinking it will have any impact on the things that matter. Okay. Won't make me happier. Won't make me more fulfilled. Won't make me anything at all. Yeah, I'll be doing it probably for either the wrong reasons. Yep, like just more money. Therefore, I can get private jets instead of business mm. class, mm. or because um, 
well, this is not the wrong reason, but just for the challenge of it. Yeah. Um, or, or thirdly, because I want to solve a problem in the world. Okay. As opposed to believing that it will make, it will make me, it'll kill my imposter syndrome yeah. or it'll make me feel more, you know, enough. I definitely know that I'm enough. Okay. I definitely know that much. And I know that nothing's going to change that positive or negative. Yeah. That's good. It's a good place to Yeah. Be. Well, I better because I said it in the book, didn't I? So. Um, how, how do you think about money? <laughs> it's a question that you often ask, ask mm. your guests that I, I really want to ask you because, mm. yeah, obviously you are rich mm. and, but there are, there are more levels of rich beyond what oh, you currently are. Yes. So like, <laughs> yeah, there always will be. And as you meet people, as, as, as I've met people who are kind of levels of rich above me, where then then I start thinking, oh, maybe it would be nice to be able to afford to fly first class everywhere. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. That, I, and, and I think, I wonder if that would increase my quality of life. And, and I know there's that, there's, you know, diminishing returns for money and stuff. But, sure. You know, first class versus, I wonder. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. How, how do you think about that? I mean, so I want to have enough money in my life that I don't have to do anything that costs time that I don't need to spend. Okay. Uh, on things that I don't get joy from doing. So like, I basically want to have, so like an airport is a great example. This is why I think I want a private jet. Yep. Because when I go to the airport, you could spend three hours just checking in and getting onto the onto the plane. And that's three hours that I'd much rather doing something I enjoy yep. doing with my life. Um, and I, as I talk about in chapter 19 of Happy Sexy Millionaire, time is what we have. I refer to these 500,000 chips we have and we get to, you know, that's because that's how many free hours the average human being gets in their life. I would like to, have more of those chips deployable against things that I really enjoy doing and creating memories with people I love, not standing in an airport queue for three hours. So if money is going to solve that problem for me, then money does matter. It's not going to make me exponentially happier. Like the queue yeah. isn't making me miserable. No, it's not going to move the needle. But Yeah, but I'd like to make more memories in my life with 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 my niece yeah. and my dog, you know, and, yeah. and with my partner. So that is my view on money at this stage. Okay. Um, con- convenience, uh, yeah. less time wasted. <laughs> yeah, that's literally it. That's literally it. It offers me nothing else. Okay. Yeah. Well, what do you think of money? I think. I think convenience is a big thing for me. Like, I also have that thing of money is useful insofar as it helps me buy back my time, which I can then use to deploy against things that I care about. But then as I kind of get exposed to more like rich people and see like the lives that they're living and like, you, you know, this idea of thinking about moving to London where like I've been living in my flat that me and my brother have a mortgage for in Cambridge for the last three years with a lodger and therefore it's returning 16% a year because I'm not paying rent, blah, blah, blah. I'm moving to London where it's like, I, I actually can't afford to buy a place in London. Like I could afford to rent a place in London. But it's like I could rent for a thousand a month, or two thousand, or three, or four. Or, oh, you know, those places that are eight thousand a month are pretty good. I wonder what it would be. You know, can I afford to spend eight thousand a month on a place that's slightly nicer, that's a little bit more central? What am I optimizing for? If I, if I get a place in King's Cross, it's easier for friends to come visit. Therefore, I can make more memories. Therefore, increase happiness that way. Um, and the money thing just sort of—I feel like those those numbers keep on going up because. You know, then you could be like, well, having a yacht would be pretty cool because then I can invite friends on board and then we can do like jet skiing and stuff. Having a private jet would be really cool because then I can like fly wherever I want and save my three hours of time and take my friends out on a trip. Having enough money that I'd be able to fly friends over to visit me would be sick for my personal happiness. And I don't know, I feel like the more I think about this, the more I start to, 
invent justifications for trying to make more money yeah. for the sake of, of happiness and, and fulfillment and stuff mm. beyond the 75,000 a year that the yeah. studies will tell us leads to diminishing returns. I think the key thing there and what I've what I said in my um, answer is that I don't think it will make me happier because yeah. I'm, I'm already I think at I don't think missing the airport queue will actually make me happier. Yep. I don't think it will because unfortunately, well, unfortunately, fortunately, yeah. I'm at a point where I don't think I could be happier. Okay, yeah. No, like, <laughs> I, I could definitely yeah. have less th- less annoyances in my life, yeah. but fundamentally, I don't yeah. think I could be happier than this okay. um, or more fulfilled or like yeah. comfortable than this. So me killing the queue by getting a jet is, yeah. um, is, uh, is removing an annoyance and increasing the the uh, yeah how intentional (laughs) i am with my time extra two chips that you'll it's it's not not going to move the needle yeah okay it's not gonna move the needle like you know and if this place was where we are now which is my home i live upstairs if it was two times bigger would i be happier no Hmm. no i wouldn't be no okay but you know, I'll probably get a place two times bigger. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't know, then I can have bigger parties and yeah, maybe that will, more people. will be a more, a more enjoyable memory at some point. But I don't, I have, I, this is the key thing as I had to at some point in my life realize, like not buy into the bullshit justification or yeah. I'd live my life running, running in that direction constantly. Yeah. And I, I say all the things I'm like, it's not gonna make me happier. Yeah. And if I still want it, then I think, um, then I'm, uh, then it's okay, it's okay for me to buy. It's yeah. like yeah, I kind of I kind of have have similar things. So often, I will like buy something. You know, I I bought one of those six thousand pound Pro Display XDRs with the thousand pound stand that Apple sell the other day, just because like, no one knows what that is. Uh, <laughs> it's like a ridiculously expensive monitor that Apple sell for like professionals, and I really didn't need it, but I was like, it would be kind of cool to have on my desk. And I knew there was zero way it was going to make me any happier. I was like, oh, it's just it's just kind of cool. And my housemate was like, oh, your your monitor's arrived. How do you feel? I was like, like just <laughs> even even contemplating how I feel as a result of the fact this monitor arrived was just kind of a bit baffling to me because obviously it doesn't make any difference to my day-to-day happiness. It was just something kind of cool that I could buy as a business expense. And I thought, kind of, why not? And I think when I was younger, I used to look forward to purchases more. Like, you know, ordered a PlayStation game when we were tracking the delivery, waiting for it to arrive. And I was just like, it's just, it's just kind of things. Um, and and the way I often describe it to people is, <laughs> it probably, maybe sounds a bit arrogant, but it's like, I feel like my happiness is a 10 out of 10 right now. And I really can't imagine that changing, but it's still kind of cool to spend money on the things that I want to spend money on. Yeah. If it's like tech or camera gear or something, something like that, yeah. Something I care about. Yeah. I completely agree now. And I, I actually don't think I'm a very um, flashy person mm. right now. I don't own a car at this exact moment. Mm. Um, I don't have like, designer watches or anything and typically if i make a purchase it's based in utility but it's really nice yeah and that's kind of what you're describing with your monitor yeah so like i travel a lot so a suitcase or oh, get a really nice one yeah <laughs> but i don't need a rolex because let's be fucking honest yeah. no one uses it to tell the time anymore yeah. so that would be purely about signaling and status yeah um i don't really buy designer clothes at yeah. all i don't really think i have any designer clothes clothes i don't really th- i mean i have another might I have a nice pair of boots or something. Yeah. But typically it's like, I mean, this is like a top man t-shirt I'm wearing from oh. ASOS. These are top man jeans. Fits pretty well. Yeah, these like utility and fit and matter, yeah. seem to matter more than um, insecurity driven purchases. And there's, there's one mental model that I, I think of, which is that if if you were the only person in the world, would you still buy the thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think when it comes to like new Apple products, yes, I would. Because <laughs> it's yeah. like, I, just, it's, yeah, I can do I can do my work better on a mm. nicer MacBook or on a, on a nicer screen. Uh, but yeah, certainly... 
I probably wouldn't get an Apple Watch if I was the only person on Earth, because I think the utility of that is more signally and more about like this is the sort of identity I want to portray to other people mm. than it is about the fact that having an Apple Watch for me, given that I'm not into running, is is actually useful. You've read a lot of books, mental models about mental models and various other things. What are some of the the key principles or key sort of mental models that have had the biggest impact on your life? Ooh. Um, there's so many I can imagine that it's quite hard to. Yeah, I think one of the main ones is is, is this thing about the the money diminishing returns curve about like beyond about fifty to seventy k, depending on what study you look at. Money doesn't buy more happiness. And I often have to like remind myself of that when I get into this cycle of the pursuit of more stuff. Um, one of the things I won't really call it a mental model, but one of the the things I often come back to is oh, I think you talk about it in the book as well. Uh, five regrets of the dying. Oh yeah. Um, and I had have those written on the top of my to do list on my daily to do list template. Um, that's that, that that's a good one. The what, other one is what is that for anybody that doesn't know? Oh yeah, so there there was this like palliative care nurse or someone who Brony, into, sorry, Brony Ware. That's the one. <laughs> yeah, she messaged me on Instagram. When oh I, no way! When I don't, I, one time I like didn't tag her Instagram, so yeah. she's like, oh yeah, thank you so much for the post. Could you tag? But yeah, Brony Ware, she's amazing. <laughs> Brony, yeah. So she wrote a book called um, "The Regrets of the Dying" or "The Top Regrets of the Dying," where she interviewed like hundreds of people who were on the deathbed, asking them, "What are your regrets?" Um, and some of the really common ones were, I wish I'd lived a life true to myself rather than what others expected of me. Uh, I wish I'd worked less hard. I wish I'd spent more time, more time with friends and family. Um, can you remember what, what the other ones are? Like, I, do you know what? I only focus on the first one. Yeah. <laughs> Cause she was like, she said this was the most common regret of the dying was I wish I'd lived a life true yeah. to myself and not what others expected of me. Yeah. Following your um, in, intrinsic motivation rather than status, prestige, external. Exactly. Factors. Yeah. It sounds like the other ones are all actually just fit yeah, into that like bucket. Off, offshoots of that. Yeah. Yeah. And people, as they're about to die, must have this amazing retrospective clarity over their what they did and didn't do right, what did and didn't matter. It didn't matter that that girl in playground said my hair was shit, or this comment on Instagram, and that retrospective clarity. Because I I say this in the book as well. This is about the. I talk about how I don't think anybody believes they're going to die. Yep. And those people know they're going to die. Yep. <laughs> so they have that, like, it's all, all the bullshit just fades away and they yep. go, I just want one more day with my son. Yeah. But also it's, it's, it's not quite the same as the whole live every day as if it were your, as if it were your last. Like there's that, that balance there. How, how do you, how do you think about that balance? Yeah. I mean, so that's actually like fundamentally bad advice because if I were to live today, like it was my last, I would probably be doing self-destructive things. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like it, it, they're going to be self-destructive be financially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like financially, I'd be blowing all my money. Yep. Like, yeah. So, um, or something like that. But the merit in that that I see is um, is living like life itself will come to an end um, at some point, um, which for me means being very conscious about the use of uh, your time. I guess, and what you're deciding to do. If yeah. you, if today were your last, you'd yeah. be able to cut through the bullshit that doesn't matter. And so let's say if this life were your last, live every life like it was yeah. your last <laughs> would be a better thing. That, then that you'd, season of life. Yeah. You'd really focus on what matters. You know, you've talked about such a diverse range of topics on your YouTube channel and really about like help, you know, helping people as, you know, as the teacher you are, become better at what they're trying to achieve. You talked about productivity, mindset, mm. Um, finance and all of these things. What what are the what are the things that you see in young people today that you think um, they most need to solve and understand about 
let's say, hmm, about mindset in order to get to that point where they are um, living a fulfilled life? What are some of the, you know, and I, I say this to you because I know yeah. how, many, how, many, how many books you've read. Thinking specifically here about like young people and you're, you're seeing them in the comments section, you're seeing the problems that they're trying to solve in their life. I think the main one that I see is a mindset that work has to be suffering. And that like working hard is like a bad thing. And that what it looks like if you're, if you're striving for something is that it, it, it looks like pain. Um, this is very much the mindset I had going into medical school where it's like, oh, I'm now a first year medical student at Cambridge University. This is, this is supposed to be hard. You know, let's get all my big textbooks out. Let's like spend ages in the library, you know, pulling all nighters, thinking it's a badge of honor because this is what work looks like and it looks hard. And in my, from my second year onwards where I realized, hang on, like, you know, the, the thing Tim Ferriss often says, like, what would this look like if it were easy? I think if more young people accepted that work doesn't have to be suffering, it can actually be easy and fun and you can have it all provided you find ways to make it fun and optimize for the things that are enjoyable. That will solve a lot of kind of problems when it comes to the things people often ask me about, which is motivation, procrastination, burnout, and and all that jazz. I think another kind of underrated tip, <laughs> which the toxic productivity people would, would, would crucify me for, is that I think everyone kind of like if you want to if you want to live a life on your own terms then you do have to solve the money problem because we all need to make money we all need to have that like in in board games we call it you, you call it as an, uh, an economic engine We're, like if you if you want to win in a board game you always have to figure out are you going to sell sheep are you going to get wood are you going to get oat are you going to get hay like what is your economic engine going to be and i think the sooner a, the sooner that can be ticked as a box or the more aligned the economic engine can be with the thing you actually find fun, uh, the more you can do that thing of living life on your terms. Because what I never want to be in the position of is where, you know, that thing of, well, I just got to work the nine to five so I, so I can enjoy the five to nine. Because that's like 80,000 hours of our lives, 80,000 chips out of the 500 that we're squandering away uh, just to survive. Mm. And obviously there's it's it's that's so much easier said than done and a large amount of being able to take that money box being able to build that economic engine is based on kind of privilege and where you've grown up and circumstances and all that stuff but i guess kind of from from where you're sitting you never had that sort of privilege growing up and you kind of succeeded despite it and mm. yeah it's just that that thing of accepting i think a lot of a lot of young people especially like the gen z the the gen z folks these days are in that mindset of, I care about impact, I don't care about money. Mm. And I think it's very hard to live a fulfilled Fuck life if you're not yeah. like, if <laughs> if you think in that way, because then it's oh, like, oh, gosh. I'm not going to talk about money. It's weird if people talk about money on the internet, et cetera, et cetera. So those would be kind of two things that I would love to <laughs> implant into young people's brains. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I do, there's been this absolute groundswell over the last couple of years of, I think millennials are guilty of it too, just all of them want to change the world. And they don't, really have a plan or have a specific route to changing the world um um or having an impact but they just want to lead with that which sounds to me a lot like virtue signaling because i think the people that end up changing the world are very specific about how, what they're going to do and it's very passion driven it's very like specific passion driven so they'll say you know someone that does actually want to change the world won't actually start with the end in mind they'll start with i want to study medicine so i can understand cancer and they'll change the world not the Gen Z that says, 
I want to I want to change the world or I want to have a big impact. And you go, what, what do you want to impact? Yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the world. <laughs> How? You're asking too much questions. <laughs> I want to have... Then that, so for me, whenever I see that in my DMs or when a kid comes up to me uh, when I've been speaking on stage or something is, I want to be a public speaker. I go, well, what do you want to talk about? It's like, uh... <laughs> go and have go and live a life worth talking about like go and have an experience go like go through some shit <laughs> and then you'll the consequences you're a public speaker i had no intention of ever being a public speaker as a consequence of, of of having some creating a life where i had some shit to talk about you know and I, I think younger generations have that the wrong way around they're so obsessed about oh wouldn't it be great to create an impact but have you have you come across um effective altruism no i'd so love to hear yeah so it's like this um this movement this community that talks about how um doing good in the world and like having an impact is actually like scientifically measurable and can be done in evidence-based kind of ways and so they you know there's a, f a few like charities and um programs tied to that one of them is give well and they uh do an evidence-based analysis of the charities in the world to figure out what is the most bang for your buck what's the, what's the highest roi on money donated in terms of lives saved or are some other outcome measures and you find that it's some pretty rogue charities that that come out top, on top here. For example, the Against Malaria Foundation. Um, on average, it costs somewhere between two thousand and three thousand pounds to buy enough malaria nets to statistically be able to literally save a life. Um, and that's like a lot cheaper than most people would think. And if someone were to say to you now, you know, Steve, you can donate three grand and you literally save a life, you'd be like, oh, great, have three grand. Mm. Um, and and so the idea behind effective altruism is that given that like like you can actually measure the impact of charities um and where i was going with this is that you can therefore measure the impact of a career and relate it kind of to money if you need to so they've done an analysis of what being a doctor is like and in the western developed world uh a doctor will save around seven lives throughout the course of their entire career and this is not taking into account the fact that if i wasn't a doctor the next the next person would have gotten into medical school and been a doctor in my place because in the UK, we have more people applying to medicine than there are places. If you are the only doctor in, I don't know, sub-Saharan Africa or in a, in a country or something, and then you stop being a doctor, that obviously has a big impact. But most of the people listening to this are not in that position. And so the way that I think of impact is in terms of like counterfactual impact, i.e. what is my impact compared to if I didn't, if I didn't exist, if I wasn't doing my thing. And I often will see comments on videos from people being like, oh, you're a you're a sellout for leaving medicine in the middle of a pandemic to like, I don't know, make YouTube videos, something, something BS like that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I can see why that's the narrative that you're telling yourself, but actually I'm not special as a doctor. Like I have no unique value to add as a doctor two years fresh out of med school. Anyone basically who has gone through medical training in the UK, cause it's pretty good medical training could do as good a job, if not better, uh, than I can of being a doctor. But where I have counterfactual impact, where I am kind of unique in the impact I'm providing is in, the fact that I have a YouTube channel that teaches people and inspires people's stuff. And if the kind of the DMs and stuff are anything to go by, you know, people will be like, oh my God, I got into medical school because of your videos. I was from this background where no one ever applied to medicine. No one thought about going to Oxbridge and I got there, you know, in part thanks to your videos. Thank you so much. And I feel like the impact I can have on the world by creating content on the internet and speaking to a camera in my bedroom mm -hmm. is arguably greater than the impact I would have kind of just being a doctor. Not that there's anything wrong with just being a doctor, of course. Um, Did you hear that, mum? <laughs> Are you listening? 
<laughs> At least that's what I try and tell myself. Yeah. You'd say that to her. We'll just we'll 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 snippet that. Yeah, snippet that. We'll send it to the video. <laughs> I'll, and we I'll just send her, yeah. email it to us. Hey, Mum, have you seen this? I just uh, stumbled across this. No, but I completely get that. And I think um, I think yeah, I think, it, and it's funny because me being selfish in my life has been the thing that's allowed me to help more, way more people. Developing my own thinking, my own skills, my own ability to do this stuff has been the, the able to create a platform in which I can help more. And I spoke to a monk, or I think it was a monk about this when I got to ask this world famous monk he was doing this massive talk in New York I, my one question was am I selfish for having spent the last five years of my life growing wealth and developing myself and my skills um should I have run off to Africa and started trying to you know save one life at a time and his response to me was that you can't pour out that for others that which you don't have yourself so he likened it to a bottle and said you have to fill the bottle in, and to be able to pour out into other people's glasses so by filling your bottle, as long as you are being, um, you're doing good with your full bottle, yeah. then that's an incredibly uh, noble thing to be doing. Yeah. And Yeah, there's something that um, Naval Ravikant says as well, which is that if you want to have an impact, then you want to get rich and you want to get famous as well, because people who are rich and famous just have more impact than people who are not, because you can just deploy more capital and social capital towards the things that you care about to make yeah. more of an impact. So optimizing for wealth and fame when you're young <laughs> and while building skills, while having fun. Um, I think, you know, there there are worse things. Chamath talks about that as well. Chamath Papadia? Yeah. Is that his name? Ch Papadia, he always, he on stage says that wealth allows you to impose your opinion and viewpoint on the world. So he says, who would you rather having all the money? Some like rich Russian oligarch who has 75 yachts mm. or me who has a desire to, um, you know, like Elon, like take us, make us multi-planetary and, and, solve the carbon problem and so with resources you can impose your worldview of good or bad i guess on the world and that is impact maybe we're just trying to make excuses for <laughs> wanting to be really yeah, exactly. fucking rich yeah, to like, justify a happy sexy millionaire yeah. is good for the world <laughs> yeah exactly no no but to be fair even this podcast like yeah. this podcast was very expensive it's very expensive to run yeah. the equipment's very expensive and this has been enabled the people we're reaching now that are listening to this has been purely enabled by by the five years of selfishness in me building a business for myself. I do this, like, as I said, I don't even know if we make a profit. I've not really looked, to be honest, from this podcast necessarily, but um, I do it because of the huge enjoyment it gives me and the impact that we see in the comment section and the messages we get. And that make, that is such a selfish thing for me. It makes me feel really good. Have, have you come across a book called The Elephant in the Brain? No. Oh, this is like a whole, it's like really well written. It's like all, all of the studies around what drives human behavior. And the main thesis of the book is that uh, we're all ultimately selfish. A lot of the stuff we do is for signaling, but there is like a PR secretary in our heads that convinces even us that our motives for doing something are not selfish and they're in fact altruistic. Yeah. Um, and there's a quote from apparently from JP Morgan, which is that a man always has two reasons for doing something, a good reason and the real reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so whenever people ask me, why do you do YouTube? It's always that, right, do I want to say it's because I enjoy helping people and like making content that inspires? Or the real reason, which is because, it, you know, social status, prestige, money, etc. I like being recognized in the streets. It's kind of cool. I mean, I think it's a bit of both, but... <laughs> and that's fine because <laughs> like, that's the yeah, truth. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's the truth for everyone. There'll be someone sat home thinking, no, no, why don't I give five pounds to a homeless person? I'm purely doing it because I want to give the money... I'm sure you want to, but the reason why is because it might make you feel good, mm. right? Or because um, it might make you look good. Mm. 
and and if you think I'm wrong, all you've got to do is go back in history. Whereas once upon a time, your family members with with very similar genetics to you might have been whipping black people. Yeah. <laughs> like and you and you wouldn't have thought that was a morally bad thing to do. No. Society is heavily controlling what we think is good, right, noble, virtuous. And as soon as we can admit that, I think we can actually create a better world yeah. that is uh, vacant of this like virtue signaling, what's the right hashtag to use? What am yeah. I meant to say? Who am I meant to be for others? I think it's a form of liberation to admit that to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, there's, a, the, the, there's a phrase that a blogger friend of mine uses called servant hedonism, which is that you like by serving others uh, and and optimizing for serving others at when you're making decisions in your life, you're in fact kind of making yourself more hedonic more 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 happy and that is actually a, a reasonable and as as long as you can admit that to yourself there's that's a pretty reasonable way of living life listen thank you for your time ali thank you it's, it's been, been very long yeah very lots of fun and you're, you're such a diverse character and that's really why i wanted to speak to you because you have such a wealth of knowledge across multiple se- uh, sectors and industries and topics and themes and i find that um and that comes from your curiosity i can tell you're deeply oh. curious <laughs> i can tell you know um and Therefore, you. this is, again, also why I think you've done so well in, as a content creator who is an educator and a teacher because you are your curiosity has sent you in search of answering complex questions that a lot of people don't actually have the, um, the time or the, the skill to know how to answer. And then your ability to break those conclusions down in ways that people understand that aren't alienating, that aren't two big words for me, Timothy in my bedroom that doesn't, didn't go to Cambridge, is a real skill. And it's also testament to the fact that you actually understand the things you're talking about. Because being able to simplify, as we know, simplify complex ideas mm. is, the, is the best evidence that someone understands those ideas. So, oh, Thank you. That's, that's very kind of you to say. Um, and it was incredibly uh, gracious to have me on. Your book had a big impact on me, the, the mental models and their decision-making, the, the chip stuff with time, genuinely has changed decisions that I've made in my life. Um, so thank you for that. And if anyone's listening to this who hasn't read the book, would, would recommend Ooh, the you, audiobook in particular, which is narrated by you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you got a book coming soon, haven't you? Uh, two years from now. So. Two years from now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll reach out that. to you to promo that closer to the time. We'll have you back on Amazing. when you're ready. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ali. Appreciate you. Thank you. one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.